Hi, this is Steve. On October 28th, 2016, John and I released our 20th episode on one of the greatest and most archetypal action films of all time, John McTiernan's 1988 classic, Die Hard. The episode was one hour, 10 minutes, and 17 seconds long. We did not go in chronological order, and to say we might have missed a few things would be a ridiculous understatement. After all, Die Hard is, in my opinion, a masterpiece of craftsmanship, with brilliant storytelling, incredible screenwriting, beautiful cinematography, great acting from the leads down to the smallest supporting characters, amazing music, and jaw-dropping stunts. So the fact is, I was absolutely thrilled you chose Die Hard as the early episode of our show you most wanted us to redo this year. The truth is, this is one of my all-time favorite movies, and I know John loves it just as much as I do. So if you think we are going to get through this one in one part, you are sadly mistaken. In fact, and I don't know this for sure yet, I have a feeling Die Hard might take three parts. So if by any chance you haven't seen this film, honestly, I don't think you can call yourself a true cinephile unless you go to cinephiles.net right now where you can buy or stream Die Hard along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, this week's short is on directors living or dead we would love to have as guests on the podcast. I mean, wouldn't you want to hear Akira Kurosawa discuss his love for John Ford, Steven Spielberg break down Hitchcock, or even Orson Welles talk about Jim Carrey movies? So that's directors we'd love to have as guests on Patreon and part one of Die Hard this Friday on The Cinephiles. Uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles. Uh, sorry, in San Diego, California. Still can't get used to that. Um, <laughs> and very excited that we are going back through the sands of time to one of our... <laughs> Original episodes to redo um, this great classic, and I think you can use the term now, classic for this movie film. It's 30 years old. This is a, absolutely a classic as far as I'm concerned. Yes. And uh, this came from every year we put out our survey and ask questions about which new movie from our that's 10 years old do you want us to do? And the other question we've been asking the last two years is which of our early films that we did a brief early cinephiles version of do you want us to redo? And last year it was Raiders of the Lost Ark and we turned that into a two-parter. And this year it was neck and neck between Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs mm. and John McTiernan's Die Hard. And Die Hard beat it by a nose. And as much as I love Reservoir Dogs, I'm so glad that it did. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, Reservoir is certainly a great film to revisit every once in a while. But I think this is a film that deserves a deep, deep dive, uh, cinephiles-wise, um, for so many reasons, for so many reasons. 
It's so good. And I'll tell you, in preparation for this, I listened to our early episode mm, of it. Okay. It was episode number 20. It's like an hour and six minutes long. Mm-hmm. And we got to, and we didn't, didn't quite go in order back in those days, yeah. but we got to him pulling glass out of his foot 20 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> that is just, not going to happen here. <laughs> no, I, I said to John before we started recording that this might be a three-parter because I have we'll a see. lot to say. There's yeah. a lot about this movie. Um, <laughs> and the fact that I, I, I texted you, it was I don't remember if it was yesterday or the day yeah. before, just like, I just fucking love this movie. I, I yeah. really do. It got me excited because, dude, I went to Best Buy the other day to get a cam link uh, because I want to get my videos to look a little bit better, like uh, as 4K as possible or 1080p as possible. And I happen and they happen to have one right in the Best Buy, right by my small little town here in San Diego. And uh, Die Hard was there on 4K for $13.99. I literally walked past it and I was like, ah, fuck it. And I grabbed it. I was like, I'm going to buy it because if I'm going to watch it, I might as well enjoy it in the best way possible before we do a review of it. And damn, I enjoyed it this morning so much because uh, it's good to take a little bit of a break and then rewatch a film again and appreciate it and savor the construction of here. And I think this is where I sensed you were coming from as I was watching the movies. I thought about you a number of times throughout the movies. I was watching it like Steve must have loved this. Steve must have loved this plant. <laughs> Steve must have loved the way they kind of wrapped this all around. And, you know, doing our show has awoken me to looking at films in a whole different way when I'm watching them. And either appreciating it or dinging it for its inability or ability to uh, pay off the plant. That's right. a really big deal. Right. And I think this movie does it in such such deft ways, in such brilliant ways, that uh, it deserves to be talked about um, amongst some of the best scripts and some of the best uh, movies ever constructed in terms of plot. And scripting, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And there's a whole, I thought a lot about plants and payoffs as I was mm. watching it too. And I've actually come up with a whole new idea that I want to discuss as we go that's going to, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to incorporate into my teaching. I'm going to, I made notes to add this to the never ending book that I'm never going to finish. Um, <laughs> but, but it's like, there's a second level of plants and payoffs, which I, I'm sort of calling tension and release. Which is that, like, if you think about um, the greatest plant and payoff movie of all time, in my opinion, is Back to the Future. And but there's all of these plants and payoffs Mm. that are that are not emotional. So the Twin Pines Mall turning into the One Pines Mall is a great plant and payoff. But you don't have any emotional connection to that. The next level of the plant and payoff is when you have deep emotional tension about yeah. a thing that you're going to pay off. And that's one of the things that Die Hard does so well. Mm-hmm. Do you um, remember how you first came to this film? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a, in a movie theater. I mean, I had become and I'm probably listen. I didn't re-listen to our show. So if I'm repeating myself or some of you that know our previous Die Hard show, well, so be it. This is who <laughs> I am as a person and I'm not going to adjust my actual thoughts or memories of this, but I do remember seeing it in the theater. I remember because it was, as I probably said in the past, I was a pre, I was a big, big moonlighting fan. So I liked Bruce Willis. I liked his energy. I liked his style. I liked his swagger. I liked his smirk. I liked everything about how he carried himself. Because although he seemed cocky, he was also pretty vulnerable. So you could see through the cockiness and appreciated that he still struck you as an every man, as yep. a regular dude who had happened to be successful being an actor. And, you know, Civil Shepherd, there have been all those rumors about how he was having struggles with her on the set. She was having struggles with him. Obviously, the chemistry, as great it was on screen, just there were some troubles in the background. But 
when he uh, did this movie, I was so excited from the trailer that I was like, oh, man, this looks like it's going to be awesome. And I hope it's good. And I remember going to see it uh, with friends in the movie theater and just being blown away by it. Um, and maybe I sat I even sat through the credits or or excitedly walked out and just sat there talking with friends about it or went and got Bob's big boys breakfast late night breakfast and talked about it because this was a film that I just from the first time I saw it has stayed with me. And, and I still quote this film, multiple quotes from this film to this day. Me too. There's so many quotes that are just sort of regularly part of my conversation mm-hmm. at this point. Um, the This story is probably the story I've told most. I've told it many times on The Cinephiles, not yes. just when we did Die Hard, but other times. But I will tell it again. And for those of you that Please. heard it before, I too am repeating myself. <laughs> but I was in the summer of 1988. I was working at a summer camp at the Lair of the Bear, the Cal Alumni Family Summer Camp that I had gone to since I was two years old. And I still go to and my mom still goes to you have many many generations of people going to this camp i was on staff in 88 and we used to get every couple of weeks a half day off and i was totally isolated from the world and there was no internet yet and we didn't have i wasn't looking at a newspaper so i didn't i had never heard of die hard and so i just went I'm going to just drive down the mountain and go to Sonora and go to the multiplex and watch a movie because I have an afternoon free. And I get to the movie theater and I see this poster and it's starring this guy from this TV show that I really like. And I go, I'll go to see that. And I walk into the movie theater and I am completely 100% alone. I'm the only person (laughs) in the movie theater. I watch Die Hard by myself, knowing nothing. And to this day, it might be the greatest movie going experience of my life. That's great. I mean, what a great way to experience it. Yeah, it was just so much fun and so surprising. And what and, and it's so funny. We talked about this a lot of movies that we've you go back to and mm. you go like, is it really as good as I think it is? And this is one where 100 it is actually better than I think think it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, and that's why I can call it classic, Steve. We've talked about this a number of times. A classic is a film that grows in its estimation as you get older and you re- appreciate it. Uh, every generation, every 10 years, you could watch this movie and get something completely different from it that affects you or touches you or or, or kind of like uh, move something inside you that you uh, had that it had moved in 10 to 10 years prior. And I think that's what's fantastic about the, uh, the great movies and especially this qualify, especially this one qualifies. Totally. Um, one other thing, uh, one of the benefits we give to some of our supporters mm. on Patreon is that they have the option to ask questions. We tell them, we, we let them know some of the movies well, well in advance and get their mm-hmm. questions. And what I've done is actually put some of the questions we got from uh, our folks at Patreon. Some of them are at the very end, but some of them are throughout the movie when we get to the thing that they're asking a question about. So we'll do that a lot as we go. Cool. I'll give you some pre-production. This is based on, I'd always known it was based on a book. Mm-hmm. And I had always kind of heard, oh, it was based on some crappy book that is not that important. And I never read it, but now I have. Mm-hmm. I've read the book. It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. It's by Roderick Thorpe. It is A, much better than I was given to believe, and B, okay. fascinating in terms of what they took from the book and then mm-hmm. what they created and how they changed it. Um, what I didn't know is that this book was a sequel to a 1966 novel called The Detective, which was made into the 1968 film of the oh. same name starring Frank Sinatra. Yes. Yes. And Lee Remick, I think, as well. 
Uh, I think it's Jacqueline Bissett. Oh, is it Jacqueline Bissett? All right. Yeah, all and right. Jack Klugman and Robert Duvall. Wow. I, I knew nothing about this movie. I'd say, it sounds like you've probably seen it. Oh, yeah. I went through all the Sinatra films. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've done that a number of times. But yeah, The Detective. And, uh, you know, this is Sinatra right near the end when he should stop acting. <laughs> and uh, so it's, you know, it, it's fine, but it's it's no classic like Die Hard. Um, and uh, Roderick Thorpe came up with this idea when he was in a movie theater watching The Towering Inferno. Totally makes sense. And he went, wouldn't it be cool if someone was being chased by people with guns in a building? And he went, oh, you know what? Maybe I could, because this is 75 that he starts mm-hmm. writing is maybe if I write this book, Sinatra will come in and we'll make a sequel to the movie and I can make some good <laughs> money. So he writes this book. Um, <laughs> and And here's the thing. So- Things that are in the book, and I'm just going to give you a partial list. Yeah. No Shoes is in the book. Okay. The Rolex is in the book. Shoot mm-hmm. the Glass is in the book. Ooh. The Partner Who's Outside is in the book. Dropping the C4 down the elevator shaft is in the book. Jumping off the rooftop with the fire hoses in the book. Like, And there's Damn. a lot more. There is so much stuff. Carl and his brother, and like all of that stuff is in the book. Wow. It's, and so I was like, oh, in terms of a plot and action, it's really good. Yeah. The character of Joe Leland, which is John McClane, is completely different. Yes. He's a, he's a guy in his 60s yeah. because he wants Frank Sinatra to come back and do it. So it's not a young guy. And and this guy is divorced and his wife is dead. And he is coming to visit not his estranged wife, but his coked up daughter yeah. who is working at a big oil company, not a Japanese company. Um <laughs> And by the way, Joe Leland, who's in his 60s, hooks up with a hot young stewardess on the flight out. Of course, of course. <laughs> it's just like all this stuff's like, oh, that's that's different. I know how I get Sinatra. I'll have him hook up with a hot young stewardess. Perfect. He'll do it. He'll do it. Uh, and so they, uh, it, it doesn't immediately become a thing for a movie, but it's a property that goes around, and it's, it sounds like it's a not a bestseller, but a, a relatively no. popular book. And they and it gets optioned by Fox, and they hire Jeb Stewart, uh, the screenwriter, not the uh, Civil War cavalry officer, um, <laughs> to <laughs> to write a screenplay. Um, and it sounds like Jeb Stewart was in bad, bad shape financially when this gig came along. And he starts trying to write it. And all they tell him was that it has to be at Christmas time. It has to be in L.A. And this is how they described it. Rambo in a building. <laughs> Which is so funny because everything became Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard on yes. a boat, Die Hard. Like, and so the fact that this was pitched as Rambo in a building is kind of hilarious. And it sounds like Jeb's having a real rough time writing the script. And then he has a big fight with his wife mm-hmm. because he's super stressed about the script. And he walks out on her, pissed off, wow. driving in his car, and almost has an accident. You know, one of those moments where you're really, really close. Mm. And he pulls over to the side of the road, heart pounding. And he just has this thought of, shit, what if I was killed and I never apologized to my wife? Wow. And that became the core of the movie. Wow. Yeah. He wrote great. He wrote 35 pages that night, changed the character's name from Joe Leland to John Ford. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it is because they talked a lot about this being a Western and they wanted to use Western stuff. And so he said, Oh, I'll make it John Ford. And this is Stuart's description, which I like a lot. He says, this is about a flawed hero who learns a lesson in the worst possible situation and becomes a better person, but not a different person. Yeah. 
Yeah. I like that a lot. A better person, but not a different person. I think most of us do that because if if you have any sense of self-awareness and you, well, you know, you want to work on yourself or you do the, you do the time, put the time in to work on yourself and, you know, kind of adjust some things about yourself. That's what you're becoming. You still stay at the core who you are, but you become a better version of that. And don't we all want to be that by the end of the day? A hundred percent. I think that's yeah. absolutely right. Um, and he loved John Wayne Western. So that became a really big influence on how he's going to make the movie. <laughs> that's where the name John Ford comes from, obviously. Yeah. And because he's working for Fox, Fox is in the process, this is 86, 87, of building their big new building in Century City. And he makes friends with the construction boss, the foreman, and gets to sneak into the construction site and explore the building. Oh, wow. And so now there's no, this is what I can't figure out. I don't think at this point there is any plan on actually shooting in that building. Mm -hmm. But he gets to look, and I totally get this, is sometimes there's a screenplay I wrote where it's a big action sequence in New York. And I literally, because of Google Maps, I'm looking at the buildings on the street, Mm -hmm. and that's helping me come up with cool action moves. Yeah. Not that I think it's actually going to be shot there, but it was inspiring. And I'm sure this was the same thing. Uh, he finishes the draft in 1987, hands it in, Fox greenlights it the next day. Wow. Yeah. So this is a down on his luck writer. And man, yeah. turns in next day. They hire uh, Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver to um, to produce it. Man, Joel Silver's career is yeah amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they bring in uh, McTiernan because of Predator. And here's what McTiernan said. He said, I'll do the movie on one condition, is that the terrorists have to have joy. It has to be fun. Because if you read the book, it is, they are real terrorists. Yeah. They are stealing money, but they're stealing money to support terrorist causes. Right. And there is nothing joyful or fun or funny in the book. The Hmm. book is super violent and super serious. And, And McTiernan goes, no, we need to have joy. That's the first thing that he says. And so now it's time to cast the film. Do you have any thoughts on who the first actor they went out to to cast the role of John McClane? It seems like Sylvester Stallone would make sense uh, at this time. Well, they did go out to him, but he was not the first actor they (laughs) went out to. Eddie Eddie Murphy? Nope. Who? Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Because he was contractually obligated because this was a sequel. They had to offer it to him first. (laughs) And he's 70. Yeah. (laughs) Fortunately, he passed. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) And then you're right. They did offer it to Stallone. They offered it to Schwarzenegger. They Clint Eastwood. They offered it to Harrison Ford, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, James Caan. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's incredible. That's such a that's such a wide variety of actors, Steve, from different ages, different looks, you know, different approaches. Yeah, would have been. They're all completely different movies. Totally different. And maybe as if people believe in multiverses, there's a multiverse where like, you know, Richard Dean Anderson becomes a superstar (laughs) instead of, uh, you know, doing Stargate for about 30 years and and, and uses this film as the I think that's him from Stargate when the TV show. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, wouldn't that have been incredible? Um, I I like the idea of I think Mel Gibson would have knocked this out of the park. That's the only person that you've mentioned that at that time. I think would have done an incredible job with this movie as mu- as well as Bruce Willis did for sure. 
Well, and he's, I mean, literally 87 is when he makes Lethal Weapon, also yep. with Joel Silver. Right. And that is, it's not the same character as John McClane at all. It's a different right. guy. But the mix of vulnerability and toughness is certainly, yeah. certainly connected. Um, Arnold says he was sick of acting, uh, sick of action movies. He wanted to change his image and do some comedy. So he didn't do Die Hard. He did Twins. <laughs> well, it's a smart move for him. I'm glad he did. I love Twins. Yeah. Twins is great. Um, and they offer it to Bruce Willis, who says no. Yeah. Because he's in the middle of shooting Moonlighting. He can't get out of his contract. Mm -hmm. And the only reason Bruce Willis is in Die Hard is because Sybil Shepard got pregnant. Oh, wow. And so they had wow. to shutter the show. Wow. And that's why. And what's so crazy is he got paid. And I don't understand how this could have happened. He got right. paid five million dollars which was a huge, huge salary. That's like an Arnold wow. salary at that time. Right, right, You know what right, I mean? Right. Well, when you have the right agents, and he's on a hit show. I mean, Moonlighting yes. was a hit show. So maybe in his mind, the jump here is, okay, I'm going to do this, but this is what I need. And, you know, this is right around that turn in the 80s and 90s when the salaries of people's, uh, of action stars was like through the roof. So I bet you him asking for $5 million was nothing, but maybe, or a little bit, uh, compared to what Stallone and Schwarzenegger got. Because I know Stallone and Schwarzenegger probably got back end, probably got yeah, points, probably absolutely. got all that Naz, all and merchandising, all that stuff. You know they made some good money off of that. They're probably like five million all in. All right, fine. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, who knows if it'll be a hit or not? Five million, that's fine. But you're right. It's interesting to make that jump from TV to feature to get that five million deal. That doesn't happen to everybody for sure. And when uh, Bruce Willis comes on, they also bring in a new writer, which is Stephen D'Souza. Mm. And they brought him and he had written Commando, 48 Hours, Running Man. And they brought him in to create some the, because of his ability to blend action and comedy. That was mm -hmm. what McTiernan, that was his big message. Like, we have to make this thing fun. Yeah. Um, originally, by the way, the Jeb Stewart script took place over three days. Mm. Wow. And they went, no, it's one night. That's yeah. it. Which yeah. is smart. Yeah, I agree. Would you like to get into the film? <sighs> All right, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you took that so seriously. That is important. Could you imagine, by the way, if you went, yeah, let's not. You know what? I'm not ready yet. <laughs> I need more prep. Let's go to part two. <laughs> you, you know what's so weird, and maybe you noticed it because you have the same QC background as me, mm. but that's 20th Century Fox logo is squished. I was going to ask you. It's out of, uh, it's, yeah, it's four by, it's a, it looks like a four by three stretched or something yeah. like that to fit into the 16 by nine. I, I think it was a mistake when it was originally printed. What I don't understand is still on that 4K Blu-ray, it's still squished. Like why? Yeah. Why didn't they replace that thing? Maybe there's an authenticity to that they didn't want to mess with, maybe. And then we hear the sound of a plane landing, and then we're on a plane. Beautiful, beautiful golden shot of the plane. Mm. Uh, by the way, the cinematographer is Jan DeBont, and this is his, you know, coming to America moment. I, th I think this is his first American film. I'm not 100% mm. sure. Um, but the movie looks amazing, and it yeah. certainly changes the way films are shot from this point forward. Uh, they really did shoot this at the airport and they just hooked up a plane to a taxi and just drove it in circles all day <laughs> while they shot this thing. And the first thing we see is Bruce Willis, John McClane, white knuckling it on mm -hmm. the seat. I, li I like that the, the film does an interesting job of undercutting yes. the toughness, you know, and a lot of people talk about this. This is the turn. And it's ironic because 
the, the Stallone Schwarzenegger thing was really just a, maybe a four to five year window in the 80s. And then as we make this turn into the 90s, we start to look at these everyman as the heroes, right? This is where the Keanu Reeves comes. This is where Bruce Willis comes. This is where a number of these skinnier kind of regular dudes become yeah. these action heroes. Will Smith, uh, just a few years later, Will Smith, you know, they, they become these action heroes uh, almost as a reaction to this kind of overpumped 80s, you know? And it's also in the, when you took out a pro wrestling, it's also the time when pro wrestling started walking away from steroids mm. for the most part and wrestlers started changing their bodies to look a certain way. Mm. And that also became where the wrestlers who were champions were skinnier. And so a lot of that was changing around this time uh, here as well. So it just made sense that people were looking to, you know, we love the fantastic fantastical 80s now that we're coming out of our co-case we'd like to connect with people we actually feel our connection to or can gravitate to the underdog we believe they're underdogs you know? so you're saying that before die hard we were all sort of ellis <laughs> just coked up delusional ellis who's been to the gym every day twice a day that's what i mean like uh, yeah that kind of thing is how we were and then now and then around this time it's cha it's changing you're so right, because if you think about all those Arnold movies and all those Stallone movies, is that one of the first things they're showing you is how tough this guy is or how yep. strong he is in one way or another. Yep. And the first thing, the very first thing we're seeing of this guy is he's scared. Yeah. And then we do a thing, and this is something that I really didn't notice in watching it before, but 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 some people have talked about it, McTiernan talked about it, and now he notice a lot, which is he does a lot of what he calls a triangle shot, which mm -hmm. is that the shot will, will convey three pieces of information. Mm -hmm. So this shot, piece number one, is the, the knuckles on the, uh, the armrest. And right. then the camera tilts up from there to piece number two, which is the guy watching Bruce Willis. And then the camera pulls back to reveal yes. Bruce Willis. Yeah. So, and we do this all the time, is three things. You don't like flying, do you? Gives you that idea. <laughs> and then we get one of the most ridiculous things <laughs> that is just so great. He says, you want to know the secret to surviving air travel? After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks. Then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. <laughs> and this is great because John, John McLean is almost kind of half impressed with that. And of course, he does it later. But like in that moment, he's almost just like, oh, yeah. And it's this is great casting, Steve. You know, your wife mm -hmm. is a casting director. And you, these little moments, these little scenes with these actors are so essential to build the world of the movie, the universe of the movie, to make it feel real. And this guy has no other scene in the movie, yep. but he's so believable. You buy him immediately as a businessman, as a guy who's been traveling because he's been doing it for like nine years. Uh, and so you buy it immediately. Just the, 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 uh, you know, the unbuttoned shirt at the top here, the vest that's unbuttoned. He's like confident. You know what? You want to know the secret of air travel? And it's just, it just totally, uh, puts you in the world of this movie. Uh, and then, of course, we get that next shot when, uh, Bruce Willis gets up. Yeah. And by the way, the casting director is Jackie Birch. And I totally Ooh. agree with you. Every single person in this movie is beautifully cast and has yep. a character. And as you say, Bruce stands up and his jacket sort of opens up a bit, <laughs> revealing that uh, shoulder holster. And there's a reaction from the guy. And he says, it's OK, I'm a cop. Trust me, I've been doing this for 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> but, by the way, it's such a small little thing, but he's walking out and makes eye contact with the stewardess. 
That is Joel Silver. He says we need some eye candy somewhere in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's smart like that sometimes. Uh, I also think it's a great way for Bruce to establish, to be established as a ladies man without even a moment of conversation about it. So the audience is immediately after we saw him gripping the armrest, we see him with the gun and then we see this woman kind of look at him and they have this little exchange, flirty exchange between the stewardess and this guy. So already we're, we're, we're out of the white knuckle moment and we're starting to like this guy, right? He's vulnerable. He's a ladies man. He's also a policeman. So that we start to connect to him quickly because Steve, the action starts 20 minutes into this movie. Yeah. So you have to establish this character quickly, strongly and believably for the audience to go along for this ride. I also maybe think this is a wink to the original writer because of the stewardess thing he wrote in right. the book. That might be a part of that as well. I, I think it is too. And the one other thing that you didn't mention is he's got a giant stuffed animal. He's got yes, a bear. Yes, he does. Which and makes him a loving person. Yeah. Exactly. Like we have all of these layers to this yep. guy just from the first minute of the scene. Yeah. And by the way, I think we mentioned when we did Hunt for Red October that Jack Ryan, Alec Baldwin, is also has a stuffed bear with him. He does. You're right. Yeah. Um, and then we cut from there. We end up at baggage claim where John McClane lights up a cigarette inside the airport. <laughs> it's so funny how shocking that seems to be now. Oh, yeah. 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 Back when you could. And then we cut to the party. We hear classical music from like a string quartet. And we start with Joe Takagi, who I think is fantastic in this yeah. movie. Yeah. James Shigeta is the actor. Mm -hmm. And he's moving through this party in this very fancy room. And he goes out onto the balcony to make a speech. And this room, by the way, which I never knew until we did our first version of this yeah. podcast, I never realized that the entire design of this huge set is mm -hmm. based on Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. Oh, wow. That, okay. And, and what's so crazy wow. is, and again, okay. we had to, the time is so different, is that we have to remember that this is 19, late 1980s, where right. we were really scared of Japan. Yes. We felt like Japan was buying all of America up. Just mm -hmm. like I remember when we did Network in that movie, mm -hmm. we're afraid of the uh, they say the Arabs are buying all of America up. Right. In the mid 80s, right. it is Japan who we're scared of. And who are we scared of today? Yeah. Same story is the Chinese. Yeah. The Chinese. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so what they said, this is uh, the production designer, by the way, is Jackson Degovia, who mm -hmm. he did everything from like my bodyguard back in the 70s. He designed Remo Williams, Roxanne, a movie that I believe you have a soft spot in your heart for Hudson Hawk. Hell yeah. Um, sister act. He did Die Hard 3, did Bowfinger, 40-year-old virgin, forgetting Sarah Marshall. This guy is a great production designer. Mm -hmm. And this is what he said. He said that he actually decided that the Nakatomi Corporation had bought Falling Water, disassembled it, and reassembled it here, this wow. American icon of architecture, <laughs> as part of this building. That's what he that's what he decided. Okay. All right. Makes and, sense. And, and by the way, McTiernan says that Degovia is the best production designer he's ever worked with. And Degovia says McTiernan is not only the best director he's ever worked with, but probably the smartest. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Takagi makes a speech. Apparently, we've had a, a, a big year. But what we're going to do here is what we're really establishing that is so important in this film is geography. Yes. Because we're going to see this big room and then we're going to see the back of Holly Gennaro or Holly McLean, Bonnie mm. Bedelia walking away and we're going to follow her down the hallway because she is not joining the party. She's still working. Mm -hmm. And we also get to meet Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> Hart Bochner, I think, or Bochner. I don't know how to uh -huh. pronounce his name. Right. 
Um, he is amazing, and he yep. is instantly flirting in a really gross way with Holly. Actually, I was thinking more of mulled wine, an ice-aged brie, and a roaring fireplace. You know what I'm saying? One of those classic 80s villains, man. Uh, like, or I'm not going to say this. One of those classic 80s, like... Assholes. Assholes. That's, yes. Yeah. Yes. Like Chet in Weird Science. Yes. Alice. Like these guys are all in a in a in a basket, uh, and it uh, they're great whenever they show up. And they're so essential to the movie that they're in, uh, for sure, to give you someone to just hate. Like you almost admire uh, Alan Rickman because it's such an incredible performance, but Alice is the one you hate. You know? Yeah, you don't Atherton, hate Alan Rickman. You don't hate him. No. Well, this is the thing about this movie, and is that I think. There are people you love, yeah, and those include the terrorists. Yes, and there are people you hate, and those include members of the police and the news and Ellis. Yeah. It's like the the normally in a movie you love the good guys and you hate the bad guys. That's yeah. not what's going on here, right? It's something really, really different. And and to say you know we we didn't have this was well before the Me Too movement, but Ellis mm -hmm. is her boss and yeah. he is clearly sexually harassing her well, yes and she clearly has dealt with it it's just this is what she has to deal with you yeah know? i have questions about this relationship and we'll go as we, when we get to certain spots uh, we'll we'll talk about it well and if we were if they had actually done the book this would be the main character's daughter and ah, she right. is not only dating ellis but they're oh. doing cocaine together mm. So a lot of what the book is about is that the daughter has bought into the shitty L.A. Uh, cocaine filled business values. Wow. And dad is here to straighten her out. <laughs> oh, and by the way, one other thing, McTiernan's direction for Ellis was he wanted him to be like Cary Grant, suave, good looking, funny. And Hart says, no, no, I know who this guy is. He said this guy should be fueled by cocaine and insecurity. <laughs> That's how he described him. Wow. And he and he sounds like he really stood up to McTiernan and said, wow. I'm going to play it this way. McTiernan hated it. And Joel Silver loved it. Yeah. And said, this is what it is. And it sounds like McTiernan came around to the performance. I hope so. Because it's it's fantastic what it's he does. It's yeah. a classic performance. Dude. People always remember it. We're in Holly's office and you'll notice there's this unbelievably gorgeous cityscape in the mm -hmm. background mm -hmm. that's glowing with golden hour sunset. It's a 280 foot backing. It covers half the stage is this, wow. this basically painting and it's animated with little lights. So there are little lights for the houses that Get twinkle. Get out of here, really? Yeah. Wow. It's a huge, huge thing. And Jan de Bont, because it's sunset, has placed a big warm light behind it so there's warm light coming through the backing to create Damn. the feeling of sunset so smart man um and by, by the way it sounds like yonder bond and john mctiernan they were at each other's throats a lot <laughs> and what mctiernan said is said no but it was great because we were both arguing to make the movie better mm -hmm. and that in the end they did make the movie better yeah and so he didn't mind that we were having arguments because <laughs> we both were trying to do the same thing yeah. And Jan goes off to be a director himself. So maybe this is like him understanding that yeah. his impulse to direct is there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you the interesting thing. Basically, McTiernan makes a couple of good movies. Yeah. Almost nobody in this film makes anything as good again. You know, they all have careers. That's fair. I mean, but of course, this is an amazing film. Yeah. You know, so it's a pretty high standard. It is. We send out Holly's reception secretary, assistant, whatever, um, mm -hmm. who is, happens to be pregnant, which is important. And yeah. she calls home. 
and a very, very cute kid answers. McLean Williams, Lucy McLean speaking. Hello, Lucy McLean. This is your mother speaking. And as she sits, we see revealed behind her photos of her and her kids. And then we see a photo of her and John McLean. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what I, so this is a, it's a plant yep. because we're, this photo is going to become very important. Mm-hmm. And, but B it's a plant with emotional tension Yeah, because the kids are asking, is daddy coming home? And of course she doesn't know. Right. And it sounds like John was supposed to call her from the airport to say, hey, I made my flight or call her when he landed. But he hasn't done that Mm -hmm. (laughs) because John is not that good at this stuff. Uh, She talks to her housekeeper, uh, Paulina, who is a classically Latino cliche. Yeah. Who is played by a Italian person. Betty Carvalho. Yeah. Yeah. She's Italian, not Latino, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it might be a good idea to make up the spare bedroom just in case. See, Mrs. Holly, I do that already. And then Holly does something very important, which is in frustration, she puts the picture with John down, face down on the desk. Great plant. Well, and this is what I mean by a plant with emotional tension is that, yes, it's a plant because one one of the issues is what does John McClain look like? And is he married to Holly Gennaro? But the, the, the emotional part of it is she's upset. We know that there's conflict right now yep. between these two people. Um, <laughs> there's the first of many California jokes as John McClane at the airport watches a woman in tight white you know, yoga pants kind of thing jump on some guy. Yep. It's so funny. It's just so you, you, did you see this in Virginia? Oh, uh, yes. In Virginia, yes. What did you think about California in 1988? Was th- was it a cliche oh. like this or what did no, you think? I-, I always had a fascination for California. Yeah, a little bit of cliche. But it's not really a cliche, is it, Steve? I'm sure that moment has happened. It's oh, just yeah, not no, the absolutely. only moments that happened exactly. at the airport. But uh, yeah, I, I have always had a, I always had an, uh, an aspiration to go to L.A. even as a young teenager. So to me, L.A. was this fascinating city full of dreams and possibilities and what have you. So um, I dug, but I always, as an East Coast boy, though, uh, I dug the cracks. I liked yeah. the cracks that he made at L.A.'s expense because, of course, when this film comes out, I'm like 17 or 18 years old. So, like, I'm enjoying it uh, because it makes sense, the jokes he's making. And it's just it's it's for fun. It's harmless, ball busting fun, because, you know, if you do this in reverse, there's L.A. people showing up to New of York. Course. Jesus Christ, New York, you know, New Yorkers or something like that. You know, it, it, it's funny. I feel like and I don't know if this is true. I feel like the country's gotten smaller. I feel like the the distance between New York and L.A. was bigger than Mm. than in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Sure. It just felt like they were more different. I mean, they're they're very different, by the way. New York and L.A. are really. different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And then and this is what this is what I mean by what McTiernan and DeBont are doing. That's so amazing. And why it's going to take us so long to go through this movie is that there is we're going to the point of the next shot is to reveal the sign that says John McClane for your mm-hmm. Limerick driver Argyle. Mm-hmm. And if I were directing it, I would just cut, I would cut to John looking, and then I would cut to what he sees, the shot. That mm-hmm. is just shot, reverse shots, classic storytelling. But that's not what McTiernan and Jan DeBont do. We look at this long train of baggage carts, and yeah. it rolls through diagonally in a really cool shot, and then that pans up revealing the sign. Yeah. That shot that they did took five times as long as my shot would have taken to shoot. And it's <laughs> so much better. 
Hmm. It's just because it's interesting. It's and there's no reason to make just looking at a sign a dynamic shot, but they do over and over again in this film. We'll see dynamic shots. Argyle, Mm -hmm. Devereaux White. Yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's so good. So young here. He he goes on. He was in head of the class. So it was like that's where I I remembered him from this movie in head of the class. Uh, and so it's great to kind of always touch base with the younger version of Devereaux White in this. And of course, he came back to play Argyle again for the Die Hard Battery commercial with Bruce Willis oh, from last year's Super Bowl, uh, which was really funny to see Argyle again driving the car. So, yeah, he, he uh, get, brings great. such joy. Yeah, he's such a great character in this film. And we hear, OK, Argyle, what do we do now? He's uh, hoping you can tell me. It's my first time driving a limo. Uh, it's okay. It's my first time riding in one. Everyone's a hero because these are universal situations, right? A lot of people fear flying. A lot of people um, have a first day on the job. You know, the way it's done. And I, I'll be honest with you, Steve. Watch it this time. I was worried there was like maybe a kind of a racist joke or kind of a joke is thrown, is thrown away at a, you know, a young black kid's expense. Not at all. So no. I loved that this stayed above board and i couldn't ding this movie because you know nowadays we go back and rewatch some of these movies you can ding them pretty hard this one stays above board throughout the whole thing and i like that he's a young kid i like that he's new at this job and you know later on it's a smart way when they get in the car to lay out the exposition of the situation in a scenario that is believable and and does happen every day probably that's ex- exactly what my note is. And to be really clear, this is an exposition dump. I mean, we are good. Yes, it is. Like, we had to get a ton of information out. Yes. But because it's filled with tension, A, because mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot going on emotionally for John. And yeah. because Argyle is so damn charming mm-hmm. and we like him so much, we don't feel it as an expositional dump. Right. Um, and and by so, by the way, one of the most important choices is where does John McClane sit in the limo? In the front row, in the front seat. And this is one of the keys for McTiernan is that he wants he wanted this to be fundamentally American. John McClane is an American character, (laughs) a man of the people, a not elitist. Yes. And that he and and this McTiernan is like, I don't want the square jawed hero who's superior to everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't want the person who's comfortable in like luxurious surroundings. I want an (laughs) ordinary guy. Yeah. So he sits up front. Yeah. And after Argyle's great speech about um, all the things we have in the limo, he says, Your friends have to trot. You know, a few mama bears we can hook up with. Or is he married? He's married. And then he, Argyle starts asking questions. And what's so great is that John McClane doesn't want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And he keeps giving Argyle hints. You always ask as many questions, Argyle. And Argyle doesn't take the hint. Yeah. And normally that would be a character that we don't like, you know, we don't like someone prying into somebody else's business. That seems rude. Yep. Is that how we feel about Argyle? No, because he's he's, like I said, he's a young, innocent kid and he's just asking these questions and he seems very jovial in this conversation. You go back to what you mentioned earlier, McTiernan wanting to give this movie a little more lightness than the original source material. So these are the moments where you lighten up the movie so that you earn those little harder moments that happen in, in later on in the film. And this is a great way to get to you to like Argyle, who they after he drops Bruce Willis off, he's just 
seen in a couple more moments before he has his big hero moment himself. So you establish Argyle immediately so that you can walk away from him and come back to him later and give him this hero moment. And the audience hasn't like forgotten about this guy. And, and what we hear is that his wife got a good job offer and yes. she moved to L.A. to take the offer. Why'd you come with her, man? What's up? Because I'm a New York cop. I got a six-month backlog in New York scumbags I'm still trying to put behind bars. I can't just pick up and go that easy. In other words, you thought she wasn't going to make it out here and she'd come crawling up back to you. So why bother to pack, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce says, Like I said, you're very fast, Argon. <laughs> And, and real quick, Steve, I think it's funny to juxtaposition this scene to later when Ellis is talking to um, to uh, uh, to Alan Rickman, uh, mm. to Hans, because he's like, oh, you're quite perceptive. He is making mm. fun of uh, Ellis, whereas here Bruce is kind of begrudgingly you're right. giving Argyle his props for dissecting yeah. the moment. Because dudes know dudes. Dudes know dudes. <laughs> and in those conversations – you know, he was basically saying, oh, so you thought she'd be running back. So, you know, he's a smart kid. Well, and one of the things I think to think about is why did John McClane fly out here for Christmas? Right. Is I think he flew out here for Christmas to make amends, to somehow make up with his wife. That's why he's here. <sighs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, possibly. You know? I, I don't think he's out here to he, I don't think he intends to come out here to yell at her. You know what I no, mean? No, no. I think he's here to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Because she took the kids, Steve. This is the 1980s. She, a woman took the kids to LA to pursue her career. And of course this comes up in the back and forth later on, but like Bruce stayed in New York to stay the cop. So it must be driving him nuts that his kids are out in Los Angeles, getting, getting indoctrinated to Los Angeles uh, instead of being in New York with him and his wife, you know? So there's, there's an interesting dichotomy. Both are in power positions uh, in this relationship, you know, I, I agree. I also think that leaving the kids with John McClane in New York was probably not a good plan. <laughs> exactly. I don't think I'm he saying. would handle that that well. No, not well at all. I agree. Uh, and we're pulling up to Nakatomi Tower mm-hmm. and the shots of the building are so ominous mm-hmm. right from the beginning. And I actually asked you this exact question when we did the podcast oh. the first time. I was asking again, although I already okay. know the answer. When you came to L.A., and you saw Nakatomi Tower. What did you think? I made a pilgrimage to Nakatomi Plaza or Nakatomi Tower, uh, and I loved it. I loved seeing it. I always loved driving by it. Um, and uh, yeah, it is always whenever I find myself, whenever I when I was living in L.A., whenever I drove past it or found it's always a nice little thing to remind you that you live in Los Angeles and there are films that are shot here and iconic buildings. Like every time I drive past Safari Inn. In Burbank, I always think of true romance. Mm. So it's like it, there are certain places in this city that stay with you. Or the Frolic Room, I always think of uh, L.A. Confidential. So mm-hmm. it's like those certain things. And Nakatomi Tower symbolizes that for Die yeah. Hard. The Formosa makes me think of L.A. Confidential. Ah, yes, the Formosa yeah. too. Yes, and absolutely. I, and I'm the same. Not only did I seek it out the first time when I first moved to L.A., mm. literally every time I see it, I go, Nakatomi. Yeah, it's only every time, every oh, single yeah. time. And I should say that Argyle sticks a cassette into mm-hmm. the tape deck to play some music. Any Christmas music? This is Christmas music. It was December 24th on Holly Sabbath the dark. When I seen a man chilling with his dog at the park. And it is Run DMC Christmas in Hollis, and it is awesome. It is one of my favorites, yeah. 
Which brings up the, one of the key questions to ask many times, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes, period. No discussion, in my opinion. So John McTiernan says it's a Christmas movie. I think it's a Christmas movie. If the doctor says it's a Christmas movie, I hate to break it to you. It's a Christmas movie. End of discussion. End of discussion. <laughs> so we pull up in front of Nakatomi Plaza. The trees on the plaza were cut to look like giant bonsai trees. Oh, interesting. There's all sorts of little things that this designer is doing that is so interesting. Yeah, and John McClane gets out of the car and Argyle runs through the scenarios. Like one is that he goes in and he and his lady run into each other's arms and live happily ever after. I can live with that. McClane says, I can live with that. And then Argyle, who's a really good guy, yeah. says, so if it doesn't work out, man, you have a place to stay? I'll find a place. And then Argyle comes up with a plan. I tell you what, I'm going to pull in the parking garage and I'll wait. You score, you give me a call on the car phone. I'll take your bags to the desk. You strike out, I'll get you a hotel. What a great plant, right, Steve? Yep. The divorce is there, so this is how Argyle ends up at the building yep. to be had to have the hero moment later on and near the end of the film. Yep. It's just so smart. It's so smart. Yeah. Because uh, it's natural, it's organic, it's believable. Well, and we're and this is the thing, and and is that I firmly believe that one of the basic rules of screenwriting, particularly in this kind of movie, you have mm -hmm. a movie where an event is gonna happen. There's going to, it's towering inferno. The building's going to catch on fire. You know, right. whatever it is, the terrorists are going to attack is that the movie that we're watching before the event happens has to be a great movie. Yeah. And I think that if Hans and his crew never showed up, Holly and John and whether or not they're going to get back together, I would totally watch that movie. That's a great other movie. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And it's because we're so involved in it that everything has so much more power as mm -hmm. we go along. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is what's not in the book, mm -hmm. is that emotional connection. Right. Here's a basic filmmaking choice. And again, it go, you know what? It goes to exactly what we've already talked about is the white knuckling. Mm -hmm. Do I make my character look heroic in the frame? They're big in the frame. The angle is low. Or do I make them look weak in the frame? They're small. When John McClane walks into that lobby, he's small in the frame. Yep. You know? Yeah. Um, and you know who uh, McTiernan was referencing that did this a lot? Oh. Fred Zimmerman in High Noon. Oh, yeah. Fred Zimmerman. Yeah. Because yeah. there's all sorts of connections between High Noon and this film. Yeah. And makes he, sense. Yeah. And his, his whole goal was don't make Gary Cooper look like the strongest, tough in the guy in, in the round. Put him in situations where he looks weak. I'm here to see Holly McClain. Just type it in there. Touchscreen was very cool in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a fantastic way to get out exposition. Yeah. First of all, by the way, the logo that comes up that we see a lot with Nakatomi is based on a samurai helmet. That is the Nakatomi oh, yeah. icon, also designed by our production designer. And naturally, he puts in the M for McLean. Yeah. Her name is not listed there. There's a reaction. He looks under G. And there is Holly Gennaro. I tweeted about Ellis today um, and someone responded. I can't remember her name. One of my followers responded and she said, I don't mind the Ellis thing. It's why does they have to look up her name when it's the only office in the building? <laughs> it's the only thing. So the security guard could absolutely just look it up himself. You know? Well, and he says logical. the party on the 30th floor. It's the yeah. only people here. <laughs> but again, this is what I mean by a plant and payoff with tension right. is that we've planted something that's very important in the movie. But it has deep emotional significance yeah. and we get it. 
We're also getting some general geography because as we walk through, we're at a low angle that reveals the gate that's going to close later on. We see where the guard is. Um, he gets in the elevator and we hear the sound of the party as he gets out. Argyle goes and parks his car and in walks John McClane to a party where he does not fit in. His clothes are different. <laughs> his attitude is different. Uh, this is the kind of room I don't think he's ever been in this room. Yeah. There is a couple looking through again. It's falling water. So we see the fountain in the middle of the set, which, by the way, Having a running waterfall in the middle of your set is brutal for sound. So they did all these things with the surface to make it quieter. So the water would run quieter. And through that fountain, we see a gorgeous sunset shot. And it is our first shot of this couple. We're Mm going to see multiple times throughout this film. Mm -hmm. And then a gentleman comes up and kisses John McClane on the cheek. Merry Christmas. And we get a fucking California. The smirk, the great smirk. I love it. Looking for Father Gennaro. Then you must be John McClane. Joe Takagi. I love Joe Takagi. I think Mm -hmm. they do such a great job of making we really, really like him. Yeah. So that in the very little time that we know him, so that when what happens happens, we are sad. Yes. Okay, here's the question. Does Joe Takagi know that there are marital problems between Holly and John? If he does, um, and he probably does, he is too respectful, you know, the Japanese culture. He's too respectful to bring it up, too respectful to make a comment about it, too respectful to be anything but nice and gracious, you know, and courteous. He said when he says, like, thanks for sending the car. Was that you? He said, Do I have you to thank for it? And he goes, it's the least we could do. So it's always, you know, like putting out this uh, energy of courteousness. Uh, so I don't I think he may know, but he's never going to bring it up. I think he 100 percent knows. And I think he part of what he is doing is creating as warm and friendly an environment yes. for John McClane because he knows that this is going to be tense and yeah. he wants to try to provide, do everything he can to help smooth the way. And also to make sure Holly doesn't leave. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause he if you needs make her. John comfortable with it, then maybe he'll be okay with her staying. Yeah, exactly. He walks uh, John back to her office where we see the name Holly Gennaro on the mm. door. And we hear the sound of a dude snorting some Coke (laughs) (laughs) and up pops Ellis wiping his nose and Takagi. And desk. (laughs) Yeah. And Takagi says, I want you to meet John McClane, Holly's husband, Holly's policeman. Of course, Takagi saw that he was snorting Coke. Of course he did. He was, uh, he was, he was ashamed. Yes. Ellis, do you saw on his face, the shame of having one of his coworkers do that. And of course he stresses that he's a policeman to kind of be like, and, Cut and it out. Ellis pops up and says, I heard a heck of a lot about you. And I, I love the line, miss some, because he's saying, <laughs> A, you still got some Coke on you. I can yeah. see it. But I always thought it was a double meaning because it's like, oh, I heard a lot about you. Oh, you know what? You missed some stuff about oh, me. You know? Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe maybe that's was, not there, but that's always how I uh, uh, interpreted it. I could see it that way. Absolutely. Uh, I, I also think when he says miss some, he's saying to him, I'm not going to do anything. You can relax. Right. Absolutely. Like, it's like, you know, like, like I'm just, a New York cop. This I'm yeah. not working here. Yeah. But he's also not approving. No, he isn't. That's why he makes the crack the way he does. Yeah. I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan. And then Takagi comes back with this joke. I think Joe Takagi has made this joke many times. Probably. Hey, we're flexible. Harvard didn't work out, so we got you with tape decks. And Ellis gives a big laugh. (laughs) 
I think Ellis has heard this joke many times and mm-hmm. laughs every time because he is the wingman for the boss. You know what I mean? Yep. And then we hear this a big celebration. A lot of it was due to Holly. Uh, <laughs> and then Ellis goes, am I right, Jojo? <laughs> I think Takagi hates Ellis. Oh, of course. Uh, someone pointed out, because I, I, as I said, I tweeted about Ellis and someone tweeted back and said, well, maybe Tak- this isn't where Takagi is based. He probably goes to multiple, uh, you know, sites of the Nakatomi Corporation. He prays probably now just here for now for a little bit. Then he's moving on. So Ellis maybe is a corp. They, like they bought out this company and Ellis. Right. Was part of having to come with the, the purchase of the company. Like you had to take this kid on. Maybe his dad is the real that's, owner yeah, of the company. And so it's like, you have to take my son on and just let him do some deals or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I think Joe absolutely, absolutely hates uh, Ellis. And then we see one of sort of many interruptions. Mm-hmm. We're in one moment and then in walks Holly and the camera pans to her. It's yeah. all so beautifully done. John. And then <laughs> as they go to embrace... Takagi's description of Holly is She was made for the business. Tough as nails. And in the moment that he says tough as nails, I think Bonnie Bedelia, who's amazing in this movie, oh, so good. looks so vulnerable and so mm-hmm. soft at the moment of describing her as tough as nails. Yeah, because I think, and, and it's obviously this is what we do here on the show is speculate and, pos- and pontificate, but I think he's also kind of like like you said, smoothing the waters a little yeah. bit, but also making sure that Bruce knows or John McClane knows how much he values Holly. Uh, but Holly's reaction in that moment is a moment of affection for John because she knows that maybe this has been a source of an issue for them, that she is tough as nails and she does what she needs to do. And she doesn't want her to be hurt by it. So she's a little like a little vulnerable in that moment. Make sure he's OK. You know, maybe maybe that's that's how I see it a little bit. Like she's a little embarrassed that he said that because she kind of wants mm. to warm him up into this conversation and not have this all on the table already. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I never thought of it quite this way, but you made me think of something, which is that both John McClane and Holly Gennaro McClane are tough as nails. Yes, they are. And both of them are deeply vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is why they're together. Yeah. Which is why they're a great match. Um, and then right in the middle of this, and this is what happened over and over again, in the middle of this moment of emotion and softness and connection, it is interrupted because mm-hmm. Ellis says, Show him the watch. Oh, he's such a dick. In his mind, the watch is important. It means yes. something. Well, go on, show him. What are you, embarrassed? It's just a small token of appreciation for all our hard work. It's a Rolex. Holly knows that a Rolex means nothing to John. Right. I mean, he probably has heard what a Rolex is. Yeah. yeah but yeah. he couldn't care less. And I think what this is this thing is one of the conflicts thematically in the movie is down to earth American values and the elites. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Ellis does not understand that other people don't share his values. Yeah. But I also think this is him flexing on John. A oh, totally. 100%. Because he is. Right, because he has designs on Holly. Mm. That's why he was hitting on her. Sexual. So I, to me, I wonder, did he pick out the watch? Was it a gift from him that he cycled through Takagi? Um, how? Because he, why did he make such a big deal about the watch? He almost takes like almost a personal possession of it, making it seem as if he gave it to her, like showing off, hey, I can buy her things you can't get her, pal. That's what he's basically doing in this moment. So... And I love that the watch always comes back at the end of the movie as the thing that 
um, is the, the last vestige of it that she has to brush off to be done with the evil. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think this is a, just such a dude moment. You know, like, I, got, I got her this. Yeah. Who are you? Who are you? you know? Yeah. It's totally that. It's so yeah. funny. Cause I, you know, every, everybody's allowed to dig what they dig and like what they like and yeah, sure. value what they value. I have never understood the watch thing. You know, someone's spending yeah, I know. two, three, five thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand dollars on a watch. To me, that is so much. It's something I personally find very distasteful, which is the I am showing you my wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, look, if you want to watch, buy a watch. But I don't I don't know. It just I, it, it's the Ellis's in the world that really piss me <laughs> off. So uh, it's not definitely not my thing. Fair enough. And as this moment is happening, we cut outside to a truck and the music is ominous and heavy. And it is the theme that we're going to hear throughout the film that goes with the terrorists. The truck, by the way, has a sign that says Pacific Courier, which is an inside joke from the designer because he uses that. There's a truck with Pacific Courier in Speed. There's one in Die Hard 3. He uses that a bunch. Yeah. (laughs) And now we're and that, in Ellis. Michael came and doing the music too. Michael came. Oh, yes. is fantastic. Dude. It's great. Yes. Um, and now we're in Ellis's office and, and I love this joke. I have to forgive Ellis. He gets very depressed this time of year. He thought he was God's greatest gift, you know, <laughs> it's a good joke. And Bruce or John McClane immediately says he's got his eye on you. He knows that Ellis. Yeah. Cause that's one of the other tensions. Is she is she hooking up with other guys or other right. guys making moves on his wife? Right. And she just, again, just brushes it off. Okay, I have my eye on his private bathroom. And one of the ways this is set up filmically is that John McClane's in a box because he's inside yeah. the bathroom. She's outside. So it creates this surface division and it creates a frame to stick him in that yeah. makes them more separated than they would be if he wasn't. Where are you staying? Things happened so fast I didn't get a chance to ask you on the phone. I love the way they dance around what's really going on because it's so human. Nobody can just bring up right away. Come stay with me. Are we going to get back together? Are we going to be a couple again? They can't say that. Cappy Roberts retired out here. Oh yeah. Tell me I could bunk in with him. Cappy retired, huh? Where's he live? Ramona. (laughs) Pomona. (laughs) Pomona. 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 Yeah. I could be in the car half the time. Why don't we make it easy? I have a spare bedroom. I think she's thought about that line a lot. Oh, yeah, of course. Which yeah. She made sure that the maid had the spare room done up just in case. Well, and the reason that she's saying he should stay there is just to avoid traffic time, you know, travel time, mm-hmm. which, of course, isn't the reason. And right. the spare bedroom is to give them space in case they're not getting back together. Right, right. It's saying you could, you might be sleeping with me, but there's also the spare bedroom. So you're not committing to anything yeah. by saying you'll stay with me. Kids would love to have you at the house. They would have. And this is the moment and it's so vulnerable and it's so lovely. And she says, I would too. That moment is admitting she loves, she said he, she still loves him and right. wants this to work. That's what she just yeah. said. Mm-hmm. And then they're interrupted. Sorry. Just, just when we're getting that little yeah, thing. Right when we're there. And of course, it's the couple that we saw before yeah. who was in the sunset together. This is our second time seeing this couple. And they are looking for a place to for some private time. Make out. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, which more. is yeah. which is interesting because here we have a couple that may or may not be getting back together. Yeah. And here we have a couple who is just probably just starting out their relationship. Yeah. <laughs> You're cute. You're cute. Do you think they're starting out a relationship? Fair. Fair. <laughs> I think it's cute. I love the way you think. But. <laughs> I'm a romantic. What yeah, can I tell true. you? It's a Christmas um, party. <laughs> and then we come back and she's still in the same moment. She says, I missed you. And he says, and I'm sure you've had this moment. Of course. Where you, the thing comes out of your mouth. Yep. <laughs> She's just like, oh, no. I guess you didn't miss my name, though, huh? Took the shot. The shot was, you didn't have to take the shot. You, you were right the there. Shot. Yeah. And this is why I think, shot. I think he did intend to apologize. He did intend to right. try to make it right with her. And he cannot shut the fuck up. Nope. And then they have this, I think this argument is great. Apparently, it's mostly um, improv. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah we did this in July. We never a, finished this conversation in July. I had yeah, to take right. it. No matter what the consequences, no matter what, what it did to our marriage, it you had to take it. didn't do anything to our marriage except maybe change your idea of what our marriage should be. I don't think you have a clue as to what my idea of our I marriage should exactly be. I know exactly what your idea of our marriage should be. And it is so tight and it is so good. It feels so 100% real mm-hmm. in a way that there is nothing in an Arnold Schwarzenegger or Stallone movie up to this point that has this, and I'm not saying those aren't good movies. Mm-hmm. And and First Blood has some real emotion to it. Yeah, that's true. But it doesn't have this just like, yeah, these are real people struggling with things that real people struggle with. You know, it's so, it's so good. And, and again, they're arguing and then her assistant comes in and I love the movie. She comes in mid argument, realizes mm-hmm. that this is, awkward and i love the way bruce willis goes hi (laughs) (laughs) it's it is so funny and horrible (laughs) because you know she's probably heard all the stories about john Mm -hmm. she's her assistant i'm sure they've had a after work dinner or lunch where they've had this conversation about john and the frustration she feels so you know she barges in in this moment well as much as john mcclain is a true hero yeah, he's also fully capable of being an asshole. Yes, he is. You know, <laughs> completely capable. Mm-hmm. And it's time for Holly McClain to go make a speech. Uh, sorry, Holly Gennaro has to go Gennaro. make a speech to the troops. Yeah, and she exits, and he's alone, and he bangs his head on the wall. Okay, so here's a thing that I read, and I, I, I'm not even entirely sure that I believe it, but this is what it, this is what they said. I read it, and then I heard it repeated, mm-hmm. is that McTiernan says they really didn't have the character of John McClane down for the first third of shooting. Wow. They didn't get, I mean, they were, they got a lot of stuff, but they didn't get the whole thing. And the big thing they figured out halfway through the shoot is that John McClane didn't like himself very much, mm-hmm. that he was filled with regrets about Holly. He didn't know how to oh, express sure. them. And so when they made that discovery, they went back and reshot little bits. The banging his head against the wall wasn't in the original scene. They had the argument, but not that moment alone That's where he great. feels shitty about the argument. Right. And that is so, that is just such a thing of, a really good director who understands the little piece. That's the little piece that makes John McClane so interesting. It's not just the fight, mm-hmm. you know, it's the humanity. Yep. When you create the humanity, of the character and the universality who hasn't had that moment where they're banging their head against the wall going, God, way to go, dude. Yeah. Way yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, well, and that's why John McClane is one of us, you mm-hmm. know, he's us. 
we see a great, great shot of the truck pulling in and going down the ramp with the Mercedes going in front. And again, it's just shot after shot. It's just really cool, really gorgeous. In the lobby, the security guard watches the truck go down through the security camera. The Mercedes pull up. Carl and Theo get out. Carl, of course, is Alexander Gudinoff, uh, defected, who's a ballet dancer, defected in 1979 and had a sadly really short career. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was it AIDS or what was it? I'm not it sure. The, okay. But it's I around that was, time. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it is. I think it was. Yeah. And uh, Theo, who's also fantastic, is oh, Clarence yeah. Gilliard. He, he's just great. Yeah. And he is in the midst of a speech. <laughs> so Kareem rebounds, right? Feeds Worthy on the break over to AC to Magic, then back to Worthy, right? It is a perfect two guys talking about a game moment. Do you think Carl has any idea what Theo's talking about? Uh, no, I think Carl could give two craps. It was, unless it's football, he has no idea what he's. I mean, I mean soccer. Yeah, he has no idea what he's talking. About. I don't even think he knows anything. He would care about that. I think Carl has a very yeah. limited set of interests. <laughs> yes, very limited, of course. Um, and I want to clarify real quick, Alexander Goodenough. It was not AIDS. It was uh, complications from hepatitis mm. secondary to chronic alcoholism. Oh, so it's a shame. That is a shame. That um, that's how he ended up passing. In 1995, so uh, he's only 45 years old. And again, the way it's shot is that the security guard is completely distracted by Theo. And then Mm -hmm. there's this moment as he finishes talking about this, you know, Lakers play is that suddenly the gun is revealed. It's a high angle shot. Carl, without hesitation, kills him. Two points. And then Theo, in a low angle shot, and I just, it happens so fast, climbs up over the desk, kicks the guard away from the desk and says, we're in. And this is 17 minutes and 54 seconds into the movie. Yep. And it's brilliant because you establish, just like you did with McLean on the plane, you establish the brutalness of these people. You establish the, uh, how little they care about the people they're going to kill. And uh, just having him jump over the desk and kick that body out of the way that was just living five seconds ago shows you the callous approach they have to any human person in this whole situation as they're trying to get this money. So immediately you sense the dread. um, And I think it shows. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it shows Mm -hmm. you one other thing, which is how efficient they're going to be. Yes. Good point. They are. They have a plan and they're executing the plan, you know. And it's going to move fast because the truck starts backing up in the parking lot. Theo is at the computer. Carl drops his coat and his gun. He walks around. He's got some disc in his hand. We see that other security guard. He rolls this disc. It's some kind of flash grenade and kills the guard. Boom. Another guy down. The next set of shots are just absolutely incredible of the truck backing up and the camera pushing in and terrorists coming out of the back of the truck. And there is Alan Rickman, a fantastic entrance. By the way, McTiernan wanted to give Alan Rickman some terrorist stuff, wanted to give him a gun and some other things. Or And Alan Rickman said, no, just let me have the suit. I just want to be in a suit. Don't give me anything that has to do with being a terrorist. Just a nice suit. This is why you cast smart actors, Steve. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the thing, and this is his first film. Mm-hmm. He, uh, the casting director had seen him and I think uh, Les Liaisons Dangereux or Dangerous Liaisons on stage. And I think they told Joel Silver to go see him. Joel Silver went to see him and they're like, yeah, this guy is special. And I mean, it's one of the greatest villain, villains ever on screen. Yeah. Agreed. agreed. Um, 
Each shot of them walking is powerful and exciting, and the music is building. And what I should say is that the theme for the terrorists most of the time is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's Ode to Joy. And where it comes from, and this is, which is so strange, there are two pieces of music that McTiernan saw in another movie that are like this used against type, that they're contrapuntal to the to the story. The two pieces of music are Ode to Joy and Singing in the Rain. Right. And do you know what music they're from? What movie it's they're Clockwork from? Orange. From Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. Orange. Yep. Is that he and he goes, I I it goes to Cayman and says, I want you to cut out little pieces of Ode to Joy and weave them throughout this movie to symbolize our bad guys. And Cayman was completely against it. felt that cutting up Beethoven was sacrilegious. And he says, and he says, I'll happily make mincemeat of Wagner or Strauss, but not Beethoven. (laughs) Give me Handel, give me anybody. Don't Don't make me mess up Beethoven. But then they finally agree. And it is so amazing. And this is the other thing I want to explain. So, so, and I, I, you know, I talked about this in the the previous time we did uh, this episode, but, but, Basic concept of music is the idea of of resolution, is that you create tension Mm. and then you create resolution. And so if I were to sing a melody and then stop before it's finished, you would be anxious. So I went, if I did, that feels uncomfortable because I didn't get there. Because we have a thing in our head that mm-hmm. tells us whether it's, you know, through biology or just through culture, how music is supposed to work. Yeah. And so what Beethoven does quite brilliantly, if you listen to the entire Ninth Symphony, is he teases you little pieces of the Ode to Joy. Yes. But you, d- but you don't hear the whole thing until the fourth movement. And mm-hmm. so you'll hear, and you know, you'll hear things like, bun, dun, 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 but that stops. Mm-hmm. Bun, dun, dun, dun. And you'll hear little pieces so that by the time you get to the fourth movement and, and then you hear it like played really lightly with, with just a few instruments at the beginning of the fourth movement. And then at the end of the fourth movement, you get all of it all coming yeah. together to play it. And because you've been set up for it, you have this tremendous feeling of release. That is resolution. And that yeah. perfectly works with what happens in storytelling is I create tension by Holly McLean putting the photo down, by the name change, by all yeah. the things that we're seeing. And then when we resolve them, we have an emotional response. And so yeah. what's happening musically by planting these little ominous, dark versions of Ode to Joy throughout the beginning that we're going to resolve later on is exactly what's happening story-wise. And this is what, th- this is what I learned. I took a scoring class when I was in USC and I've continued to think about this idea, mm-hmm. tension and resolution. And of yeah. course, the main job of, of a storyteller is to not give resolution. Mm-hmm. The main job is to keep our characters unhappy, but yeah. to at the same time, clue our audience into what they want. So if the audience doesn't understand what they want or that John McClane and Holly want to get back together, yeah. then this doesn't work. Is you have to do things to keep them from getting what they want so you can later resolve it. Yeah. Um, so... Fortunately, he did convince Michael Kamen to put <laughs> Beethoven's Ninth into the film. We have Theo typing, doing a whole bunch of stuff. We see him lock down all the elevators. We see gates closing. 
we see the elevator opens. Again, amazing entrance from Alan Rickman as he comes out. Theo rips out some wires, kicks a thing. Um, it's very obvious they got a plan. And then there's a build in the music until Alan Rickman looks out the window and there's a sudden pause in silence. Slides the key, locks the door, tosses the key, and just tossing the key quickly and a guy catching it shows these people are together. Mm-hmm. And then we switch to uh, the back of Carl's brother, and we know that he knows where he's going. He has memorized the layout because as we walk, he's saying right and left in German. Rechts and then he even slides down these steps. It all, again, happens really fast, which shows that the terrorists are really, really slick. And we get another leitmotif. A leitmotif is a piece of music that gets played over and over again for something, a basic theme. And this one we're hearing, bum ba da bum So that's a theme that gets played throughout this movie. Do you know what that's lifted from? We've already lifted something from Beethoven. Uh, no. What is it from? Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire. That makes sense. It's walking in a winter wonderland, Ah. which is a Christmas song. Yeah. And again, I I didn't notice that one for watching it many, many times, but it's definitely, definitely in there. Again, it's so fast. He gets to the panels that he needs to get to immediately, cuts them open with a circular saw. He's down there cutting wires, doing things really, really fast. And there we cut from these super efficient, super scary, dangerous terrorists to yeah. fists with your toes. Son of a bitch. <laughs> fists with your toes. By the way, the first thing Karen said is, why would anyone have carpet in a bathroom? <laughs> that is disgusting. You shouldn't it's do a that. Point. It's a fair point. But what I, what I love too, it's not just that he's in this totally bizarre position of barefoot and making fists with his po- toes, mm-hmm. but he looks awkward and yeah. human and he's kind of slumping. Yeah. It is un- as unheroic as you could possibly get. And he pulls out his wallet. And there is the exact same photo of him and his kids as Holly put down on the desk. And he calls up Argyle, who mm-hmm. seems to be having a ball. I'm kicking it down in the garage. What's the word with you and your lady, man? Uh, the vote's not in yet. And then up walks Carl, Alexander Gudinoff, and asks if his brother is ready. And his brother says no. Carl doesn't hear him and just starts cutting these big conduits. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy has to rush to finish whatever the job, something to do with the phone lines that he's yeah. doing. And he just barely makes it. And that cuts off the phone call with Argyle. So yeah. there's so many things just in this moment of we've seen the terrorists are super, super efficient, really know what they're doing. We see that Carl's not necessarily that attentive. Nope. We see a moment of comedy between these two brothers and we watch the phones get caught off between Argyle and John McClane. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff they're doing. There is. Yep. Um, and Carl's brother apparently is named Tony. Oh, it's Tony. Tony, thank you. <laughs> Tony. Which, by the way, that Tony. is the name of it is it is Tony Gruber in the book. Oh, wow. Yep. That's so funny. Now we're going up in the elevator. And as they arrive at the floor at the party, the string quartet at the party is playing Ode to Joy. One of the things, by the way, that uh, both Jan de Bon and McTiernan are great at is it's such an interesting thing where you have someone in the middle of the crowd behind other people 
Mm. And yet you still make them the clear focus of the shot. Yeah. Is that there's so many times where Hans is, even though he's small too, he's the littlest guy, but he's always the most powerful person, even when he's in the center of the crowd. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's like cinematography magic for me. Yeah. They walk out and there's a pause and we do not see what happens. And we cut back to John hearing the gunfire. That's another great choice. And we are now 23 minutes into Die Hard. Mm -hmm. And now John McClane has an actual problem. (laughs) He grabs his gun. He looks out. He sees a bunch of guys with automatic weapons. He looks through the door. He sees the exit sign. Again, I think this is a triangle shot where we go from John to the exit sign to the bad guys. Oh, yeah. Um, The bad guys are searching through all the rooms. And now we have our third shot of our young lovers, John. I think these (laughs) kids are going to make it. Yeah, I, totally. I, yeah. And oh, they're trying to make it all right. They were trying to make <laughs> they it. They were right. trying to make it. It's so funny how mandatory nudity was to action movies. Oh, yeah. In, the, a 80s? Cer- in right. the 80s. I'm sure Joel Silver was like, I need a pair of boobs. I need them. <laughs> I'm so sure fu- he was. It's so funny because action, most action movies are four quadrant now. They're, they're Marvel movies where kids get yeah. to go to see them. They go into Ellis's office. They look into the bathroom. No John McClane. Cut to bare feet running up the stairs. And, I, you know, the fact that he's barefoot, that is just such a brilliant, brilliant choice. Right? Yeah. Great choice. And that goes back to the book. That's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, we're going to get more geography. We get to the 31st floor. We see bad guys there. They are gathering the hostages. Ellis is freaking out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stay calm. It's going to be funny. Takagi is poised but angry. And we get to, I think it's the 32nd floor, which is under construction. Yeah. By the way, the designer's idea, his image for this movie was, this is a jungle movie. This is a movie mm. where the guy takes out all the soldiers in the jungle yeah. and uses the trees and the backgrounds to hide himself as he takes everybody out one by one. Mm. And so this floor that's under construction has all these vertical metal beams, and that's the trees in the jungle. Mm, that makes sense. And he's got his gun out, and he's looking around, and he's going, think, think. And then we see that he sees something, and then we see what he sees, which is a woman across the street talking on the phone. And, of course, she's in her panties talking. That's what happens all the time in L.A., ladies yeah. and um, <laughs> It's just how we are. That's Yeah. A, well, in the 80s. Fucking California, just, man. It was fucking California, man. Um, by the way, this is so Hitchcockian, I think. Oh, when, yeah. It's the rear window. I mean, he's looking yeah. out a window. He's seeing someone, and we know exactly what he's thinking. He's thinking mm-hmm. their phones are working. My phones are not working. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this movie is that John McClane spends the entire first act trying to get help. Yes. He is not spending the first act fighting the terrorists. He does not want to be the hero necessarily. He knows this is a situation that requires more than one person. Well, and again, this is high noon. What does Gary Cooper do for most of the movie? Tries to get help. Yeah, tries to get the townspeople to, to help him. Yeah. Why does Hans Gruber read this speech out of a book? Uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Oh, I think it's to reinforce that he's somehow, you know, this kind of elevated terrorist, this kind of intelligent terrorist. It's, it's branding. It's absolutely branding so that if anybody lives, uh, they can say, oh, he came in and he read this one, this incredible speech. He's not like a typical terrorist, man. He's got something going on, dude. You know, it's that kind of thing 
to kind of give the uh, impression to the people there uh, making into hostages that he's an intelligent terrorist. I definitely think it's that. Mm. I also think that Hans Gruber is a person who is constantly performing and probably yeah. and he he continually changes his performance mm-hmm. so that you can't get a lock on who he really is yeah he's kind of a chameleon because in this moment he does the you will be witnesses which is like heavy yeah. and then he pops the book close and in a totally different tone says now now where is mr takagi and we hear the background of Joe Takagi, that he was born in Kyoto in 37. His family immigrated to San Pedro. And this is, I think, the key line to the speech. Interned Manzana, 1942 to 43. And this, by the way, McTiernan says he wrote that. Oh, wow. By the way, I love when he goes by Ellis. <laughs> <He's speaking laughs> and Ellis is like, it's not me. <laughs> And, and then we hear about his, you know, obviously he's a great student. He became this huge businessman. We hear his resume. I think by the end of this speech, Takagi has become a, a whole person. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yes. With a whole history. And it ends with. Enough. And father of five. Again, in a completely different tone. It's a pleasure to meet you. In a completely friendly business kind of voice. Mm-hmm. And they push Takagi out of the way very abruptly, revealing Holly. Mm-hmm. All of that is so well constructed. Yep, absolutely. And we're in the elevator with Hans, who is humming. John, you remember what he's humming? It sounds like Ode to Joy, is that right? He's humming Ode to Joy. <laughs> Which means, by the way, the Ode to Joy plan was made before they started shooting. Oh, good plan. Yeah, good point. You know? Yeah. They already had decided this is this thing they're going to do. And then Hans continually, continually keeping people off their balance. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. (laughs) I like that there's like a music hit on, he knows where I get my suits. (laughs) I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his there. Nice little 80s reference. Well, it is. It's also a terrorist reference. Of course, of course. And so it's a connection between your business, the Nakatomi Corporation, and are the same. You're like terrorists. And I'm a terrorist. And now we go through another gorgeous, gorgeous set, which is the executive suite. And it is a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright designs and a lot Mm. of Japanese art. When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. That's one of the quotes I say all the time. Benefits of a classical education. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. Not a classical quote. Right. It's, 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 so, and I had it because, you know me, mm-hmm. like I had to look up like, well, where's people said, oh, it's from Plutarch, but it's not actually from Plutarch. There's, um, there's a quote from John Calvin, which is similar. Plutarch, what's interesting about his quote, I'll, I'll, I'll read you a brief version of it. Mm-hmm. He says that King Alexander the Great, hearing uh, this philosopher discoursing and maintaining this position that there were worlds innumerable, Alexander fell weeping. And when his friends and familiars asked him what he was crying about, he says, have I not good cause to weep that being as there are an infinite number of worlds, I'm not even done with this one. Hmm. And that's not exactly, that's not even really close to what Han says. And the meaning of that is actually Alexander unhappy because he's failed, yeah. not unhappy because he has nothing else to conquer. Right. The line is fantastic. It is. And, and what's so funny about art 
I think way more people know that line than know Plutarch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I've That's never true. read Plutarch. <laughs> I should. I, and I wonder if maybe, and you know, once again, we're speculating out into the void, but I'm wondering if maybe this is the first tell from Gruber that he's not all he seems to be. And Takagi latches onto that. Hmm. Right? Because oh, it's yeah. classical. And maybe Takagi goes, okay, this is a clown. Yeah. This is a guy pretending to be something that he's not. You know, the, the John Phillips thing. He's trying to seem like he's on Takagi's level. But I think Takagi, because he's so well-educated, would have known that's not a quote from uh, that Alexander said or from Plutarch or whatever. And so he immediately understands that this guy is not um, what he seems to be. And so it might give him some advantage. You know what? You know what I love about doing this show with you, John? Yeah, man. Is that here we could take a movie that I've seen over and over again. In fact, when I was mm-hmm. doing my notes on the movie, I can't type as fast as the movie is happening, but mm. I actually know all the lines. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I know this movie really well. And yet you just helped me discover something that never occurred to me. Because one of the things I'm thinking about was that there's this class structure between the ordinary American and Hans, who is the intellectual, who is the upper class person. But what you just made me realize is that that is bullshit. Is is. that Hans is fake. And that what is Mm -hmm. actually upsetting to him is that he is more like John McClane than he would care to admit. His background is more closer to John McClane's background Mm -hmm. than it is to the elite background that he's trying to play. And, And they put a big red nose on it on that truth at the end of the movie, near the end, rather, when Holly says, you're nothing but a common thief. Right. And that's when you understand, like, all this has been done just so they can get some money and escape onto the Cayman Islands or wherever. Mm -hmm. But he's a joke, you know, and even, and he's telling you he's a joke when he has his little moments with his crew, when they're like Delta Dawn, that's something I read in Time Magazine. (laughs) There's no reality to him. Yeah. It's all show. And I bet if he got put in prison, uh, it would not be a good situation for him. Let me just say that. Jeez. Oh, well, he yeah. never made it there. Never made it. That's true. He never did. He never did. Um, uh, and then he has this line. <laughs> I think this line has become more important the more I think about it, which is. I always enjoyed to make models when I was a boy. The exactness, the attention to every conceivable detail. That's how Hans commits crimes. You know, right. The exactness, right. the attention, the detail. By the way, the bridge he's looking at is actually a Frank Lloyd Wright design oh, wow. for a bridge to go over the San Francisco Bay, huh. which they got from Frank Lloyd Wright's estate and cleaned it up because it was really in disrepair for this mm. movie. And Takagi goes, oh, because he thinks they're terrorists. Like, is this yeah. about our project in Indonesia? You know, we're going to help that country. And Han says, I believe you. I read the article in Forbes. <laughs> Once again, showing off. So. Yeah. You know what? What just what another thing just occurred to me? What does Ellis say? I saw sixty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Ellis is posing like he can understand Hans's world, right? Um, and then again, he has this weird shift in tone, this huge smile, and he says, "Mr. Takagi, I could talk about industrialization and men's fashions all day, but I'm afraid work must intrude, and my associate Theo has some questions for you." Sort of fill in the blanks questions, actually. Alan Rickman is able to do a thing with his mouth and his tone of voice that is only Alan Rickman. Yeah, yeah. A computer screen has popped out of this unbelievable table. Uh, by the way, one of the key design elements of Die Hard is triangles. Oh, yeah, definitely. There are tri- the building has, has triangular shapes. The rooms have triangular shapes. This table yeah. is a series of triangles. 
Um, Loco. Yeah. It's all about all these angles. And they say, we want this code. Mm-hmm. And Takagi goes, well, you won't be able to use this. To, we'll, we'll change all the codes. And then... Mr. Takagi, I'm really not interested in your computer. But I need the code key because I am interested in the $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds that you have locked in your vault. And this is just one of the key moments of the movie. What kind of terrorist are you? (laughs) Who said we were terrorists? This is when McTiernan talked about joy. This is it. Mm -hmm. Who said we were terrorists? Right, right. That's just great. And who comes in at this moment but... John McClane sneaks yeah. in and he's seeing them from a distance. And we see that Hans has his gun out and he's taken off the silencer. And he says, the code, please. Man, Takagi's got some guts. Well, I also think because Takagi thinks, like I just said here a couple of minutes ago, I think Takagi is assessing him, right? I mean, look, if you mentioned that he was an intern in Japanese camp, that changes you as a person, mm. right? Who you trust, sure. who you don't trust. How to analyze people at a younger age than you maybe would have learned how to do so. And so his life is this. Like his life is, and be successful business also, is being able to analyze situations, people's faces, people's tones, whatever. So in this moment, because he's kind of found him out as A, not as smart as he thinks he is or claims to be, and B, a common thief because he just right. flat out admitted all he wants is the money. Takagi thinks he has, at least I'm I'm assuming, he has more bargaining power mm. than he than he thinks he has. Um, and it's a it's a mistake he makes here in this moment, but he thinks he can wait him out. He thinks he can reason with him. He thinks, you know, it's 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 like if I just bear wear him down, I'll um um I'll beat him uh, with my intelligence, right? Well, I I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, unlike Ellis, Takagi is the real deal. Yes. Like, and he knows how not to blink in a tough negotiation. Yes. And that's what he's going to do here. And he's arguing. And then again, because Alan Rickman is able to make these shifts in tone from I'm just a fellow businessman to I benefits of a classical education to we're just having a conversation to. It's a very nice suit, Mr. Takagi, to be ashamed to ruin it. I think Takagi is starting to go. Maybe this is more serious than I think. Yeah. I'm going to count to three. And he counts. Mm-hmm. And John McClane is watching. And he gets to three. And Takagi says, When I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. And Han says, Okay. And kills him. Which is great. So great. Not because Takagi dies, obviously. But because it's a, it's a moment of just more so than the security guard. Oh, yeah. We've gone to the next level to build the fear and the tension in the movie that they that anybody can die now. Now that you start established this, anybody can die in the movie. And the Jaws shot of yeah. uh, of, of Bruce Willis, like when Roy Scheider sees the shark, like the, that shot is just so perfect. And now John McClane understands the level to which these people are willing to go to get what they want. 
Well, and this is the key too, is that the, the movie's ability to play with tone mm -hmm. is incredible because we just had whoever said we ter were terrorists, which right. is really fun. And now you have to contrast that with real scary violence yeah. right after yeah. that. And what's amazing about this movie is that it can have completely funny moments, super, super fun moments with both good yeah. guys and bad guys yeah. and be really deadly serious when yep. it's deadly serious. And of course, then we undercut that right away because we see that uh, Carl and Theo had a bet. <laughs> yeah, he gave him money. Yeah. Uh, and John moves and they hear him and they go out running after him, looking for him, guns drawn. And he is sitting outside a door, cowering, very, very afraid. And we are left alone with Hans and Theo. And I love the way they have the shot because Hans is in the foreground in focus. Theo yeah. is in the background out of focus. Normally you would rack focus. So you would switch the mm -hmm. focus. So Hans would go out of focus. Theo would come in, but they don't. Theo stays out of focus the whole time. Now you can break the code. You didn't bring me along for my charming personality. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay. After this exchange with Theo, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Hans is going to kill Theo, right? There's no way he leaves Theo alive. Hmm. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. Why do you say that? I Because I think guys like this use guys like Theo. And at this point, if they get, escape with $670 million, he never needs to pull another heist again. Yeah. Never. And so less shares. I just think, I think in my mind of all the people that could die here, I think there's probably four people he would have allowed to live afterwards um, from this situation. I think he'd have sent Gudnoff after everybody uh, uh, in the truck. They probably would have escaped in the truck, got to a safe house or something like that, and then Gudnoff would have just shot them all to death, and they would have taken the money, him, Carl, his brother Tony, and then maybe one other person, uh, and they would have just uh, taken that money and taken off. I don't believe he would have kept Theo around at all. It's totally motivatable. I think that's totally possible. I, I, it, it, what's really interesting to think about is how much is Hans just a complete sociopath because it, yeah. and how much does he, is there any, like, there's one way to think of it is like, he doesn't care about anything or anyone, in which case you're totally right. I don't even know if he wouldn't kill Carl in that case. Possibly. Um, or it's that he's made a certain choice. I want to get this mm -hmm. and therefore I am not going to hesitate to do these horrible things to get the thing that I want. Yeah. But still might have some loyalty. It's also funny too. It's like, I just go $640 million split 12 ways or split five ways is way more money than anybody needs. But of course I'm also the guy who wouldn't spend three grand on a Rolex. Like, you know? <laughs> right. Right. I still, I just, uh, yeah. yeah. I just think because he's hired Theo, right. Theo says you didn't yeah. hire me for much. So he's a freelancer in essence. So he right. doesn't need to keep him alive. Well, it does and, seem like there's the Germans yeah. And then there's a few other guys. Right. You know, right. I think Marco would have been dead. Yeah. I think the American guy would have been dead. Um, um, and it almost feels, I'll tell you this one last thing. I'm sorry, Steve, when we roll on, um, there's shades of the Joker here. That, I literally was going to ask you that question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. No, yeah, there's go ahead. Yeah. There's shades of the Joker here for me because Hans comes in, he's shifting in tone constantly. You never know what he's going to mm -hmm. do. There's no hemming and hawing though, when he has to kill somebody. Uh, and he is uh, at times making jokes uh, combined with the brutality and in certain moments frustrated, even though he's trying to maintain, uh, you know, a, a strong face. 
So throughout it all, it seems like everyone else is in service of him, except for maybe Carl, who does contradict him in, in, in his actions. Um, so he's engendered this kind of loyalty with this crew that he probably hired freelance to help him on this mission. So it very much feels like a more intelligent Joker, so to speak. Well, it's funny because when you brought up killing Theo, the first thing I thought of is the opening of Dark Knight and the Joker killing off each person yes. that's doing the heist with him. Yeah, that's um, what I that's think. Why, that's what you made me think of. Um, yeah. I, what, what's interesting, too, is I think all of them acknowledge that Hans has ability, like Hans has a plan. None of yes. them could come up with this plan. Only Hans could right. come up with this plan. Right. You heard the shots. You're calling the police right now. Got <laughs> to Argyle <laughs> talking to some girl. Yeah. <laughs> having and a ball. Dancing, dancing to Stevie Wonder music. Yeah, I well, love it. And again, it's like these huge shifts of tone. We just had a really serious moment, and now we're having a totally fun moment. 30 minutes to break the code. Two hours, two and a half hours for the five mechanicals at the minimum. The seventh lock, however, is out of my hands. And the door opens, and for the first time, we see the safe. And, yeah. and by the way, you know I said that the main shape theme of this movie, the motif is triangular. Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. safe is round. That's yeah. part of why it stands out. There's no angles on it. It's all very round. Yeah. And what music do we hear the first time we see the safe? Ode to Joy. Yeah. Um, and it is so stunning that Hans just loses track of his conversation with Theo for a moment and there's a pause and then asks Theo to repeat and Theo says the seventh lock the electromagnetic seal you do understand the circuits cannot be cut locally <laughs> and Hans says trust me here's a little thing about movies that doesn't make any sense but it's correct mm -hmm. there's no reason for Hans not to tell them the plan yeah, right, of course. And in fact, yeah. if I was Theo, I wouldn't go on this job unless you told me how you were going to get past the electromagnetic lock. Right. But the movie is better when you don't tell the plan. Yeah, right. Um, we're back on that construction floor. John is alone and is talking to himself. One of the other great choices of his character is that he talks to himself. Why the fuck didn't you stop him, John? Because then you'd be dead too, asshole. I don't know how many times I've had this conversation <laughs> with myself in certain situations. Why'd you fucking do that, man? What you, well, because I thought I was going to get this, man. Uh, you know, I, I've been in those moments. Not not in Nakatomi Plaza or anything like that, but like I have definitely had those moments. Man. <laughs> you want to know what Joe Leland, the star of the books, expertise oh. is? What? He's an expert on terrorists. Oh, and not only so. is he an expert on terrorists that trains people how to fight terrorists and how to deal with hostage situations, but right. he knows Gruber. Yes. He recognizes him oh. from the beginning and knows exactly who that guy is and who this team is. That's funny. Okay. And that's the opposite. You know, it's like everything that they do in the movie is to make John one of us. Yep. Even though none of us could do what John McClane does, mm -hmm. we feel like he's one of us. Yeah. You know, as opposed to Arnold, who will never be like. No. You know? No matter how much he tries to seem like he's one of us. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Arnold cannot be one of us and we no. cannot be him. <laughs> and John, and again, it's the same. He looks around and we see what he sees. He sees the sprinkler system and he sees a fire alarm. And we yeah. cut to a blinking light and we got a fire alarm. We've got a fire alarm. And immediately Hans knows exactly what to do. Call 911. 
give them the guard's name, the building code number, and cancel the alarm, then disable the system. And then he asks, Eddie, on what floor did the alarm go off? And John McClane is up there looking out the window, and here comes the fire trucks. And again, this is why Bruce Willis is so good in this movie. Oh, baby, come to Papa, come on. Ah. <laughs> I don't think Mel Gibson could do the come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking mm. Dalmatian. I don't think right. he, Clint Eastwood can't do that. No. Nick Nolte couldn't do that. You know, Arnold certainly can't do it. No. Bruce no. Willis can do it. And then we hear the elevator. And that is a sound that becomes very important throughout this whole movie. And out comes Tony with an automatic weapon. The fire has been called off, my friend. No one is coming to help you. And then I love this moment. He cocks his weapon and then says, I promise I won't hurt you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's just a great, like, I don't <laughs> think you're telling me the truth right now. <laughs> but why would you never talk when yeah. you're walking into a room? Why make yourself a target? That's, yeah. a, that's a very, very. Well, I think Tony is way overconfident. Yes. He doesn't know what he's walking into. You know, no. if he was a smart, even if you're a really good terrorist, you still don't just walk into the room and turn the lights off and walk through the middle of the room. Yeah. Yeah. While talking, you're totally right. Yeah. Uh, and then right after saying, I promise I won't hurt you, he comes around that stack of drywall and immediately opens fire. <laughs> Nobody there. And then we hear the sound of a skill saw and he runs around, finds the saw, and then there's a gun at his head. Drop it, dickhead. It's the police. Tony doesn't seem phased by this at all. You won't hurt me. Oh, yeah. Why not? Because you're a policeman. There are rules for policemen. That's what my captain keeps telling you. <laughs> and the elbow to the head. Which to me seems kind of dumb. You got a gun on the guy. Yeah. Why engage in hand to hand? Well, because he's a New York cop. And John <laughs> McClane's already shown you yeah. that uh, he doesn't always make the right decision <laughs> yeah. in certain altercations. So. Um, and then this fight <laughs> is just brutal and close. And we're slamming into those metal poles and slamming into drywall. And they back down through the door, crash down the stairs. And John McClane pops up and Tony does not because he (laughs) broke his neck. Yep. One of the interesting things the stunt coordinator said is that stuntmen shouldn't be just thinking about doing a cool stunt. They have Mm -hmm. to be thinking about the camera. How does the stunt look for camera? And and what he said is if you're not thinking about the camera, you're just doing a stunt show at an amusement park. Yeah. Is that it's all about how it looks. It doesn't matter what you're really doing. Mm-hmm. Theo has broken the code. The code is Akagi, which, by the way, means Red Castle. And mm-hmm. the Akagi was a Japanese aircraft carrier that was destroyed at the Battle of Midway. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Which he was in. Who? The actor. He was in the movie. Midway. Really? Yes. Joe uh, Takagi? I, Joe uh, uh James Shigeta. It, one of his, yeah, right here, Midway. He was Vice oh. Admiral, uh, the 1976 movie Midway. He is Vice Admiral uh, something. Chuchi, I don't want to say it wrong, so I'm trying to find it in the cast list, but he is in the film Midway. So I wonder if that's a little, like, yeah. shout out to him. Uh, yeah, Vice Admiral Chuchi, Nag- Chuchi Nagumo is who he plays in the movie. That so is go. a fantastic catch. <laughs> And then Theo goes in with a big, giant drill. Bet your ass I wish to proceed. <laughs> Which looks, I don't know if there's any drill that actually looks like that, 
but it looks yeah. really cool. John's looking through Tony's stuff. He finds some uh, clips of ammo. He finds a radio. He finds a lighter, finds the wallet, looks at the license. Yeah. Grabs the shoes and says, Nine million terrorists in the world, and I got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister. <laughs> and he kicks the shoe off and it lands at a Santa. And yeah. again, this is like everything is here for a reason, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we see him in, and I just, I can remember seeing this in the movie theater and seeing him open up this elevator and just the feeling like this guy has a plan, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we've talked about it so many times, but I love watching intelligence at work. I love watching someone who's thinking and coming up with ideas like the fighting is great. I love the fighting, too. But like the, it's the it's the character and the ideas that just I find really thrilling. And that's yeah. definitely what's happening here. Yeah. And he, he opens up the door and we're in a, a high angle and we don't know exactly what he's doing. But mm-hmm. we cut to a big wide shot of Alan Rickman talking to the crowd. And he says, I wanted this to be professional. Efficient, adult, cooperative, not a lot to ask. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. And there's a big reaction, and then he kind of brings down the hammer. We can go anywhere you want us. You can walk out of here or be carried out. But have no illusions. We are in charge. And at that moment, there's the bong in the elevator. And please remember. The doors open. We have left nothing to chance. And we see the dead body there with the Santa hat and a woman screams. And all of a sudden, these terrorists who thought they had it all under control are running around trying to figure out what's going on. And Hans gets the elevator, pulls down the sweatshirt and reads. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. So now I have a machine gun is in the book. Mm. Ho, ho, ho is not. <laughs> uh, and this is for people that appreciate film, for people who want to make films. Yeah. The thing that makes the great film is the ho, ho, ho. Yeah. The, now I have a machine gun is great. And that's great that you came up with that. But what yeah. elevate it's, it's like, that wasn't you. You had 50 good ideas. Fantastic. Not enough. Yeah. Like this movie, every single second, they're good ideas. A security guard to be missed. And the camera moves up, and what do we see? But John McClane above the the roof of the elevator, looking yeah. through like a little crack, taking notes on his arm, which mm-hmm. I absolutely love because he's writing down the names of the terrorists. And that, to me, again, it's like, oh, this guy is smart. Oh yeah, we have to do something, Hans. Yes, we do. We have to tell Carl his brother is dead. And this is the moment, John, this is the moment where finally John McClane is coming into direct conflict with Hans and the terrorists. And at this moment, believe it or not, we're not that far into the film, but I think it's time to end part one of our exploration of Die Hard. What do you think? I think it's a good time because A, McClane, as you said, is now direct uh, uh, confrontation with these terrorists. B, he's taken out the brother of someone who's going to become essentially the pit bull, uh, uh, the dog for uh, the main terrorist that is uh, Hans Gruber. Uh, and also, uh, we've got a little bit of fear amongst the terrorists for the first time. Yeah. So from here on out, 
It's uh, it's anybody's game uh, between John McClane and all these terrorists. And so we'd love to hear what you think about Die Hard. Please visit us on our Facebook page. You can do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on Apple iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play. You can visit anchor.fm, which is where our uh, show is hosted. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files, on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, on SR Morris one on Instagram. You can support the show at patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. John, how would people find you? Uh, you can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and of course, head on over to my YouTube channel as well, youtube.com. I think it's slash C slash John Roca Says, but just try slash John Roca Says and see if I come up. It is the Outlaw Nation outlet. Um, uh, and also I'm on Twitch. So I've been Twitch. on Twitch <laughs> for the last five days, about to become a fil- an affiliate uh, and I'm I'm there all at, with my account. It's the Outlaw Nation, all one word, the Outlaw Nation. Come and follow me there. Once I become affiliate, I'll be hosting watch alongs mm. of some movies that are on Amazon Prime. So I will be setting up my own Outlaw Nation film festival for people. So this is the plan I have going forward for that on Twitch. Excellent. So come aboard. And yeah, somewhere else, the Outlaw is appearing right now. This week is on Enterprise Incidents, my Star Trek show. Yes. John is coming on for two parts to do the Menagerie Part 1 and 2. Uh, the Menagerie Part 1 is out. Part 2, when this yes. drops, will go out maybe a couple days later. And mm-hmm. I think that is it for this week. We will meet you again at Nakatomi Plaza next week for Part 2 of Die Hard on The Cinephiles. 